to offer you. May the Lord be with you. I'm very excited about the continuing in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. I'd like to invite you to open to our reading for today. It's, we're still in Matthew chapter 5. So if you're in your New Testament, the very first book, the book of Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start reading with verse 38. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, we hope that you bring a Bible with you from home. It's something that you normally study and take notes in and read. If you don't have that, you can grab one out of the chair or you can look it up on your, your phone, use the app. Matthew 5, starting with verse 38. You have heard that it is said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it is said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's Word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I'm just curious if you who have been here for a few weeks have been enjoying going through the Sermon on the Mount. Has that been helpful? I have really been enjoying it. It's been very challenging, and we've been inviting you to get immersed in it, so hopefully you're finding some time throughout the week to maybe also dig deep and maybe read some of these words. Is that a helpful exercise? Here's what I'm finding as I'm doing this. I end up with a whole lot more questions than I have answers. These passages are so challenging to me. I'm, I'm curious. And so I noticed that as I was going through my sermon last night, getting ready for today, that I, this is a sermon that has a whole lot of questions in it. So maybe after the service, uh, I can meet you in the back and you can give me some answers to these. So, First question, how do you know if you have an enemy? If they hit you, yeah, good. I, I should have called you earlier in the week. <laughs> I did some research on this because, I, of course, I always want to bring you helpful and useful tips. So in case you have an enemy, I thought maybe you would want to try to identify them. So th- these are spy tips for dummies and in the category of trying to figure out your enemy. Uh, they suggest that there's three kinds of people that you need to be aware of. First of all, there are what you call green, happy-faced folk. These are people that are your friends. They're rooting for you. They like you. They're happy with you. They want the same thing that you want. You do not have to worry about green, happy-faced people. They're your friends, okay? Second category. These are the yellow, impartial-faced folks. They're neutral. They don't know what to make of you. Maybe they don't know you. Maybe they don't understand you. They might be your friend, But they might be your enemy, too. They're sort of waiting to see how things turn out. So you've got to be aware of the yellow, impartial-faced people. I think another way they talked about them was yellow, nice people. 
So beware of nice people. The third category is what we call the red-faced folks. These people hate you. They're also described as red, frowny-faced folks. They don't agree with you. They want to see you defeated. They're mad at you. Sometimes red, frowny-faced people turn into red, screaming-faced people. Then you know you have an enemy. So that's how you identify your enemies, by the color of their faces. How's that? Helpful? I didn't find it super helpful, so I thought I would also add some other tips. Uh, This is from the movies. Uh, Tips from the movies about how to find your enemies. You have an enemy, one, if they're wearing a black hat. Number two, if there's ominous music playing whenever they come in the room. Number three, if everyone dreads their arrival, that's an enemy. And number four, if they point a weapon at you, that's an enemy, okay? Now, I'm going to test just to see how well you picked up on this. If you hear this music, what do you expect? Who do you expect to come into the room? Dun, 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 Yeah, okay. You know that if you hear that music, you're going to see a guy come in with black face, breathing heavily, and he wants to destroy all people. He wants to destroy all humanity by turning us good people into the dark side. You know that you've got an enemy there, okay? If you could see his face, it would be red and frowny. Um, I don't know if he's screaming because he's breathing so heavy you can't hear the screaming. Question number two. Do you usually think of yourself as having enemies? I don't. In fact, as a kid, I thought that I never had enemies because I heard stories like this when I was a kid. I heard stories about Moses standing up against Pharaoh And there was this intense battle which culminated with the coming of the plagues and armies chasing God's people. I'm like, Moses had an enemy. I heard stories like Samson striking down the Philistines with a jawbone of an ass. This, you know you got an enemy if you got to like fight with this bone. I heard about Elijah running from Jezebel for his life. David facing Goliath with a slingshot. Jesus facing Pilate, a life or death trial. Stephen being stoned by an angry mob, Paul being thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. I never had enemies like that when I was a kid. And so as I'm listening to these Bible stories, I'm starting to wonder, you know, I've never had to encounter arrows or rocks flung, or I've never faced jail time, or I've never felt like my life was in danger. So do I have enemies? I didn't have that kind of enemy, for sure. When I was in junior high, I did face an enemy, and his name was Frankie. And uh, one day I was, you know, passing from class to class in the hallway, minding my own business, and all of a sudden Frankie punched me in the face. And I had no idea who he was or what prompted that or why this was coming. But from that day forward, Frankie and his brother Raymond and uh, his little gang of bullies uh, was about three years of torment from this guy. And... uh, Even as a 12-year-old, you know, I'd heard about these words from Jesus, love your enemies, pray for those who do good to you. I'd heard, you know, turn the other cheek and all that. Um, And so I wasn't sure what I should do with Frankie. I decided in my kind of understanding of what Jesus was telling me to do that I should not hit him back. And so no matter how often he, you know, bullied me, I didn't hit him back. I do not ever remember praying for his good. And I am absolutely certain that I never turned the other cheek on purpose to him. 
But I was just a kid, so I don't, I don't know if I understood all the things that Jesus was telling us to do. I did the best that I could. Um, I did remember thinking in my heart that I wished that Raymond and Frankie and his posse would do hard time for the crimes they were committing against me. I remember thinking that. And then I remember, um, I think it was right after I graduated from high school, I remember hearing that Frankie and Vac did get arrested for some reason, I don't know why, and was in jail. And I remember thinking, good, he, got, he probably got what he deserved. That's what I remember thinking about that. You have heard that it is said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now Jesus, when he's going through the Sermon on the Mount, we saw this last week too, uh, he's in this little section where it's like, well, you've heard this, and he's referring to the Old Testament law and what the people in that day would have understood these laws to mean. But I tell you, this is the form that he's following throughout this part of the sermon. So these Old Testament principles that he's talking about in this little section here is talking about a very common understanding of the law and the way it was applied throughout the Old Testament, and it was called the law of retaliation. The law of retaliation says, if you do something to me and you get caught, then I get to do the same thing back to you. That's the retaliation that's allowed. It's legal. This was a principle that was set in place to try to help establish justice, right? Because it only seems fair that if you do something to me, well, then if we want to keep things fair, then I get to do the same thing back to you once you're caught. That's your punishment. That's the consequences. This is the law of retaliation. You take my cow, I'm going to take your cow. You poke me in the eye, I'm going to poke you in the eye. You slap me on the face, I'm not going to turn my other cheek, I'm going to slap you on the face. This is the law of retaliation. And the details of this are spelled out in uh, kind of laborious lengths throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But its design becomes very clear when you start to study these passages. Its design was set up for two main reasons. It was so that the penalty that you had to pay was not arbitrary. The penalty you had to pay was directly related to the crime that you committed. Cow for cow, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And it was also set up so that the penalty that you had to pay was not so severe so that like you take my cow and I take your herd or you poke out my eye and I poke out both your eyes and cut your tongue off. Okay? Because these laws are trying to establish fairness and justice. We want to make things equitable and just and fair. That's the fair retaliation leads to justice. Sound good? Yeah, well, if you want to walk around, you know, missing eyes and body parts and ducking all the time, that's maybe a good way to live. Jesus sets up an entirely different thing. Well, I got to admit something here, though, first. My basic understanding of compassion kind of defaults to this. I think the thing that I'm really required to do to show compassion or love someone is just kind of exactly what they did for me, I got to do for them. That would be kind of my normal response of compassion. Jesus comes along and says something completely different. He says, well, you have heard. Fair retaliation maybe is the way to go. I tell you, extra mile compassion is the way that you should go. It shouldn't be retaliation. It should be compassion. He resets the law. He invites us to look at it completely different. 
he changes the target that we're shooting at. Now we're not shooting at fairness or justice. Now we're going to start shooting at compassion and mercy and kindness. This is the, the target that we're shooting at. Maybe the law of retaliation works for bringing about justice on, in this kingdom, in the earthly kingdom. But Jesus, remember, when we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, he's setting up a picture of a different kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is trying to cause us to think about in this whole sermon is he wants us to think about the kingdom of God. How would things operate in that kingdom? Jesus is speculating about that, and he's trying to invite us into this deeper understanding of like, well, it might work that way here, but I've got a dream, he says, for all humanity that they live differently, that they live in God's kingdom and experience all the fullness that God has, all the flourishing that God has to us. If we're going to live that way, then the law of retaliation is not going to work. There's a different law, and that's the law of extra mile compassion. That's the law that comes into play. Now, if you want to dig into this real deeply, I'd invite you to read through Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus chapter 19, we actually get all the Ten Commandments kind of restated, but they're all expanded. Not expanded as much as Jesus does here, but you can definitely see where it's headed. Leviticus 19.18, in fact, is the verse where Jesus gets the idea of the second greatest commandment. Remember what that is? First commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second commandment is, Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is where Jesus gets it from. And I would speculate that we kind of like that commandment, actually, right? We think if we're going to like, get along and everything, we've got to like, love our neighbor. So we like the idea of saying, there's certain people that are kind of in my circle of influence, people I love and care about, I'm concerned about. These are my neighbors. Yeah, I should love them. I should do loving things. Leviticus 19 goes on to subscribe, describe kind of specific ways that we're supposed to love. And it, this is where it starts to do resetting for me. Because my kind of understanding of love, my neighbor, usually goes to kind of, well, I'm not going to do anything to hurt my neighbor. And if there's some good thing I can maybe figure out to do, then I might do that sometime, from time to time. So avoid doing all bad to my neighbor. Do some good occasionally. Leviticus 19 just kind of blows this all open because it starts to describe specific ways that we're supposed to love our neighbors. And it really starts my thinking going. Loving our neighbors means... This is verse 10, Leviticus 19, verse 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor. Okay, this is a very specific way that I'm supposed to love my neighbors around me. When I'm harvesting, I'm not supposed to take it all for myself. I'm not supposed to go pick the field clean and get it all up. I'm supposed to leave because on that day, the poor who are my neighbors, the only way that they were able to survive is if I was able to go into your field and pull from the corners glean from the edges, the things that you left over. Loving my neighbors means I actually have to look out for the well-being of my neighbor. I actually have to plan ahead and then leave this stuff and then allow them uh, access to it. He goes on to say that loving my neighbor also means that you shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Instead of just kind of tolerating those people around me maybe who have this handicap, I'm supposed to actually treat them with dignity. I'm supposed to go out of my way to help them and to assist them, to make sure that there's no, there's no thing in this world that's going to like trip them up and cause them to fall. I'm supposed to be a blessing to them. He goes on to say, loving our neighbor means you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Love insists that I don't talk about others in a manner that diminishes their character, that puts them down, that makes them seem like lesser people or that hurts their feelings. 
Loving our neighbors means that we should not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people. And this goes on and on and on throughout the book of Leviticus where we get details about loving our neighbor. And the extent of these details indicate two things. One, yes, I certainly should never do any bad thing to my neighbor. I shouldn't go out and hurt my neighbor. But if that's all I do, I haven't done nearly enough because these commands say I actually have to go out and figure out every loving thing I can possibly do to help my neighbor. I've got to be proactive. I've got to care enough to go out there and do good to them all the time. This is the vision that Leviticus 19 starts to build for us. So often the law, if we limit it to kind of like fair retaliation, we understand that we're just going to simply try to like do our bare minimum to avoid problems. But if we have extra mile compassion in our minds, then we have to go out of our way to say, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to seek the good for every one of my neighbors. How does that work? That's another question I have because I'm not sure exactly how to live that that out. I do get one kind of little pass if I stick with Leviticus 19 because it seems like in this context, loving your neighbor was limited to kind of my fellow Jewish person, the, the people who were kind of like me because these laws were applied to their own community and they actually have a different set of laws and expectations for people who were like foreigners aliens, outsiders, enemies. They actually had a whole different set of expectations for them. So loving your neighbor is only this. And this is, I think, where Jesus gets the phrase that we read in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The traditional interpretation of Leviticus 19 was like, yeah, we're going to do all these things to love our neighbors, but we don't have to do anything for our enemy. It's okay to hate your enemy. In fact, that's why they're enemies. That's why Jesus says it this way. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of God. Because God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, then what reward is that? The tax, even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your own people, well, what more good are you doing than others because even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's the target that Jesus is setting up and really has been coming throughout the whole chapter. Be perfect. Be morally flawless, just like God is morally flawless. So avoid doing every possible bad thing and pursue every possible good thing that you can. That's the standard. And then that leads me to my next question. Who can do that? How does that work for you guys? I have trouble with that. So one more complication, just because it's not complicated enough already. Do we usually think of ourselves as having enemies? Because if we don't, then this does get a little bit easier because then I don't have to love these people because I don't have them. I don't have any enemies. But not every enemy shoots arrows or throws rocks or slaps you in the face, right? Who among us hasn't been cheated on or talked down to or diminished or lied about or betrayed or pierced through so that your heart is broken? by someone that you care about? 
enemies that are not like black-headed armies ready to come destroy us, but family members and friends and siblings and children, spouses, people that we cared about who hurt us. And they made us bleed so that to this day we still have this wound that we're nursing and this bitterness that we're nursing, secretly hoping that maybe they'll get what they deserve. Retaliation. Have anybody like that in your life? Ever? Jesus seemed to recognize both the magnitude and the frequency of this problem of enemies because it comes up quite a bit. And it comes up in some unusual settings like this one. Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, well, then leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come make your gift. It's like this is such a common thing that he can imagine that people are coming to worship and they're doing everything right. It looks like they're worshiping God, they're engaged, but then in the lo and behold, in the middle of this, they go, oh boy, I am, uh, I am not reconciled with this person. I have an enemy. And God says, well, if that's the case, then you better just leave worship right now and go make it right. Go reconcile with that person. What's one of the things we confess in the Apostles' Creed? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. For everyone? Do we believe only in the forgiveness of our sins? Or do we believe in the forgiveness of sins of all sinners? Do we believe in wholesale forgiveness? Like anybody can get forgiven for anything they've done at any time? Do we believe in the forgiveness of our enemies? I just wonder how far we can push this. These are the kinds of questions that just kept bombarding me this week. Anybody ever pray this prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Easier to pray maybe than to do. Wouldn't we rather see a little loophole? I mean, this is why we get back to the loopholes we talked about in the last couple of weeks especially in this one, love your enemies. Wouldn't there be good to have a few loopholes? Love your enemies, except I get to have a little clause about a few that I don't have to. But Jesus says, you've heard it this way. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Jesus said, you've heard it this way. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So right now, maybe you're wondering about motivation. What's my, what's my motivation for this? And he kind of brings that up in the passage a little bit, talking about the reward. You know, what's your reward if you live like this? Because even the pagans live like that. You know, even the tax collectors do that, minimum. Even they live by the standard of uh, retaliation or retribution. But what's our motivation for non-retaliation? What's our motivation or our reward if, if we are going to do extra mile compassion for people. So I had a little debate going about this this week and somebody suggested, well, maybe following Jesus' advice turns our enemies into friends. Maybe that's your motivation. Your enemy can become your friend. And I go, yeah, well, but you're also just as likely to get punched again or killed if you've got the wrong enemy. 
So then they suggested, well, maybe evil, if it's not resisted, as we're told, maybe it burns itself out. Maybe they just get tired of being evil, and so they give up. And I go, well, that's not working out so well so far. See, evil seems to be pretty rampant all around us. So they say, well, maybe we should just trust that God is going to take vengeance on them sooner or later. God will get them, right? Because God promises to set all things right. And I go, yeah, well, I wish he'd do it sooner if he's going to do it. And then they say, well, maybe this non-retaliation, maybe this is a, a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual exercise or practice. If you can just engage in not retaliating, maybe that's part of how God wants to grow you spiritually. And I go, I think of other more pleasant ways to grow spiritually than that, than getting slapped or punched. Well, maybe my motivation to love my enemies, I suggest, is because hatred's bad for you. And that negativity is hard on you spiritually and physically and emotionally. You're giving them power over you if you hate them and you let that hate fester. And I go, yeah, but dreaming about retaliation can be really sweet sometimes. So they say, well, maybe you should love your enemy because it proves who's the better person. And... God will reward me for being the better person. And after all, Paul points out that by doing this, um, if we're kind to our enemies, it'll heap burning coals on their head. And then I go, well, now who's being the better person? I don't know if that really qualifies. I'm just waiting for God to get them. So I got to wondering if, you know, Jesus isn't really offering any common sense motivation to live like this because there really isn't any common sense motivation. This is crazy. This is a crazy idea. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Don't resist evil. Don't resist the evil person. This is crazy talk. What Jesus does do, I think, in this passage to offer motivation for living like this is Jesus describes a different kind of kingdom. He describes a kingdom where justice is not about eye-for-eye retribution, retaliation. He describes a kingdom that's about extra mile compassion. He describes a kingdom that's about love and mercy. A kingdom where love wins out even over evil. He describes a kingdom where bitter enemies and rivals become friends and neighbors. He describes a kingdom where lions and lambs lie down together. Where children play with snakes. Where a bear and a calf enjoy life together. This is the kind of kingdom he describes, a kingdom where slaves and slave owners are together, the abused and the abuser, the persecutor and the persecuted, the betrayed and the betrayer, the one missing the eye and the one who poked the eye out. They're all part of this kingdom, a kingdom where good does not resist evil and good still wins. That's the kind of kingdom that God is describing, a kingdom where people who rebel against God Hear this, God says, you're mine, you belong to me, I bought you, you're my people and I'm your God. A kingdom where a perfect man lays down his life for imperfect people. A kingdom where, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A kingdom where, while we were still enemies, Jesus says, I love you, you're mine. A kingdom where God haters get to become God followers and God lovers. This is the life that God dreams for us. This is the life that God dreams for all people. This is the kind of kingdom that God wants to bring. And it seems to me that this is not a really practical thing, but it seems to me that it's motivating because what it does is it resets our compassion.
it helps me imagine what that extra mile compassion might look like and how that will bring about this kingdom. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought to love one another. That's the motivation for extra mile compassion. So I'd like to just wrap up by doing a little bit of what Jesus told us we should do if we're in worship and we think we have an enemy. Well, then we should go make that right. I'm not going to ask you to leave right now and go do that, but I'm going to spend a little time in prayer and I'm going to give you a chance to maybe think about that. Maybe think about, do you have an enemy? Who is that enemy? And what would it look like if you were reconciled to that enemy? And uh, maybe pray right now in these moments and ask God to show you uh, what it would look like if you forgave that person, if you extended love, if you had extra mile compassion to go to that person, what would that look like? So I'm just going to take a few moments for us to go and spend some time reflecting on that. So let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for loving us. And we ask that you will help us to love our neighbor and love our enemy. In Jesus' name, amen.